Hey, everybody, welcome back and thank you for listening. If you have been following the podcast, we have been chronologically outlining my story. And this particular episode, we are going to be uh, picking up right where we left off, which is my personal experience on uh, my prison perspective. This played a pivotal role in my transformation and uh, I feel like it's going to be very impactful. I wanted to uh, let you guys know that this is going to be separated into two parts. We're going to have a part one and a part two uh, released on the same day. So I hope you guys enjoy and make sure to follow us on TikTok and Instagram for updates, episode releases, and ways that you can help us make a difference. So without further ado, here's today's episode of The Perfect Storm, My Prison Perspective. All right. So this is the first time you are telling your story, your prison story in its entirety. Like, yeah, you've told stories here and there, you know, around the campfire, whatever it may be. But I think it's really important to acknowledge this chronologically, because like you said, this is where a lot of your transformation happened. There were so many pivotal moments that led you to this moment where we're talking about the mission of the Do South Design Center. So our last episode, we ended up with you having a lot of questions, right? You just got busted in the hotel and you're wondering what's going to happen to your sons. Are you going to be able to come out of this detox, right? And so we're going to start you arriving in Kentucky. What about Kentucky? Okay. So Kentucky is a federal holdover. It's, um, uh, they don't have any of these in Tennessee, which, well, actually I'll take that back. I think there's one in Springfield and there's one in Chattanooga. And these places are where federal convicts, people who have broken the law in a federal way, go to either fight their case or find out, you know, if they're guilty or innocent. It's where you're being held, um, if you can't pay your bond, which 90% of federal, you know, people are not going to pay a bond or they don't have a bond because if the FBI arrests you, it means that they have a sealed indictment on you, which is enough to basically convict you for something. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you ever get arrested by the FBI, you're going to jail for sure. So anyhow, this is full of people who are uncertain, unsure. Everyone has questions. So it's uh, it's different. It's not prison. It's like county jail on steroids, but it's worse conditions than you would see like on 60 Days In or something like that. It's mm-hmm. You would think that federal institutions would have like everything would be top-notch and taken care of and you know, government money and, you know, good facility, good staff, but it's actually the opposite. And it's a common thread through this whole story. So um, with that in mind, it's just like seven months of, you know, poor living conditions and um, poor food. There's no uh, money in there. I mean, these people are making like gobs of money by selling e-cigarettes, you know what I mean? So... And you said you were in there per, for technically a pretty fast amount of time compared to most people. Right. And what was... Well, oh, like your your average, you know, time in there is about two years. That's what it takes someone to, you know, go to suppression hearings and, you know, evidential hearings and arraignments and the whole legal process. So me, I had 
of course, given them a confession and the overwhelming evidence that was there. And they tried to charge me with, you know, these certain things like uh, they tried to charge me with a hate crime because I was impersonating, a, you know, an innocent race. So you apparently if you commit a crime, you got to commit it as the race that you are. Or you're targeting an innocent race. So I had to get that you know, I had to fight that. That was two years that could have been added on to my sentence, so on and so forth. So in seven months, I was arraigned, tried, and convicted, which once that's done, it's like, hey, you, you're you guilty, you're going here, and, and that's that. So Yeah, and during that seven months, there was a very, very, very important moment. And to me, I remember sitting in your front yard and you're telling me this story and my jaw literally dropped to the yep. ground because one of the pivotal reasons why you even robbed the bank is because you had the vision of this future, right? You're about to have a new baby girl. Like this is, you know, a, a new family start fresh. Right. And so during that time... You know, you're obviously messaging or talking in some de degree to your girlfriend. And right. tell us, tell us, tell us the jaw dropping <laughs> story here. So, yeah, it's, you know, she was, you know, everything in my life at that time. And, you know, and, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat anything and act like I'm this martyr because, you know, I was on drugs and they did, you know, affect my decision making and mm -hmm. somehow make my decision making process end up being robbing a bank is an actual solution to these problems. Obviously. So, you know, I don't want to sit here and say I did it for that, but that's the reason I did, you know, try to, you know, turn over this new leaf and, you know, start knocking these things out. So it, it was a big deal to me. I went to the ultrasounds. I was, I was there. I, it was an inspiration to me. It was a chance to start over and have a new life to me. So after a, a few months of being in there, you know, she lost the house, had to go live with some friends. And I was like, you know, go to the health department or wherever it is those people go and try to get on like the, I think like families first or one of the whatever, food stamps or whatever. You know, even if I come out of here owing 15 grand, at least you and the baby will have a check. She's like, okay, whatever. So she went and did it. And um, like... Two weeks later, Quest Diagnostics come in. It's like you don't get any visitors where I was. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, I get to go on a field trip. So they came in and swabbed me for paternity, which is one of the first things that they do in that situation. And um, a couple weeks after that, I get a little letter in the mail and I open it up and it's got like, it's, it's from Quest Diagnostics and it's got zeros all over it. And I'm like, what is this like zero percent chance that uh i i'm not the father or zero percent chance that i am the father or surely i was like i think i'm reading this wrong so i like asked a couple of buddies to read this and they're like yeah congratulations you're not the father so i'm like you know what i'm okay mari <laughs> so i'm sitting here i'm i Really, I'm white as a ghost. It's all over my face. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of guys can see it because, you know, I, you know, kind of, you know, wear it on my sleeve anyways. So, you know, a lot of guys and I like pretend tough or whatever. So anyways, I, I looked at this envelope for like two weeks. I would wake up, you know, you sleep comes and goes in there, especially when you're, I mean, at this point, I'm full on detox, and so I'm sleeping about 30 minutes here, two hours over there, and 
Anyhow, every time I would wake up, I would look at this thing again like it was the first thing I was looking at. And I was like, I could not believe this, right? Mm. I never even knew that there was even any, you know, of course, sometimes you might think that someone's being promiscuous, but not in a million years. I never would have thought it. Never would have thought it. But um, yeah, comes to find out, um, the kid wasn't even mine. So, um, And so that whole entire time you're in there, you're thinking that you had a daughter. Right. And do you, like, did, like, did you, I'm assuming you, obviously you all named her, like, have, like, updates yeah. about. Yeah. The whole, she was born, you know, I drew pictures and written letters oh, and made little, you know, like a snow globe with her heart in it, you know, like, it was. Will you, will you, will you tell, will you tell us baby's name? What was the name? No, I'm not going ah. to with her. Ah, jaw drop. <laughs> Fine. Maybe you like. <laughs> I'll get it out offline off of the episode. I will know. Uh, Look at my comments. Right, right. But, okay, so that's obviously one relationship that's starting to absolutely crumble. Yes. Uh, First of many. Sure. And in there, you know, you're not, you just don't get to talk to anyone. I mean, it costs like 30 bucks just to set up a, a, an account on the telephone. And, you know, nobody's trying to mess with me. I literally just had everybody seeing me on the news on Easter Sunday, no less, uh, as a huge embarrassment, like disappointing, embarrassing to my family. Like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that, you know? And, you know, I've, I was feeling the same way. Of course, I was emotional and scared and, you know, it was tough. It was like, I'm here, this is happening. You know, this is gonna take years and I don't, I'm, I'm literally surreally processing that, you know? And so it was like, ride it out. You're here. Be here. Be involved with where you're at and survive and get through it. That was what I told myself and, and told myself through the whole thing. And the other thing I told myself was not to take it seriously. You know, guys will come in there and they will act like this and try to play everything up. And you've got everybody comes to, to jail a superstar, you know, but come to find out they didn't have this or didn't have that or wasn't the guy they were saying they were doing or say that they were. And for me, it was just like, it just seemed like everybody was putting putting on a, a, a show, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just hard to take that whole uh, rough guy, tough guy stuff seriously to me. Even the gang stuff, it seemed uh, very, it, it seemed comical to me, to be honest with you, it did. But I mean, don't get me wrong. It's real. It's it's real, and they don't think it's very comical. That's for so you. You gotta act. Yeah, you, know, you gotta act. Yeah. And you have to fall in, or you're or you're not gonna you're not gonna make it. You will not survive. So how did you? So seven months go by. How do you figure out where you're going? What's like? What what's that process like? So in there, you you know, you're everybody learns from everyone else. Some there are guys in there on violations who've already been through the system, who know the system, and their their information passes on. They're like, you don't know anything about nothing about how the system works. Um, there's a book that's published every year called Busted by the Feds, and that's about three inches thick, and explains all the point systems and rating systems and. Um, how the uh, federal justice system uh, classifies crimes. They have uh, amounts of like, let's say narcotics on there. For example, they'll say, if you had uh, 100 to 170 grams of this, um, you, it, it equates to this many points, this many danger points or, or whatever. And uh, if you had this much and a gun, it equates to this. If you had this much and a gun in a school zone, it equates to this. So there's this spreadsheet, this 
ridiculously astronomically complicated spreadsheet wow. for calculating your time. And there are guys in there calculating up their time. And I've seen a lot of people in there, like in the feds, hearsay evidence is, um, you know, it's, it's admissible. Like someone could literally call them up and say, hey, I saw uh, Brittany um, doing this outside of here. And if that's recorded, they can come arrest you, convict you, and try you on that hearsay evidence. Wow. So if you just happen to be friends with somebody you don't know as a drug dealer and he calls you up and say, and you borrowed his, some sugar from him last week. And uh, he says, hey, I got your stuff. I'm bringing it back and hangs up. You end up on a conspiracy. There are guys in there on Rico conspiracies, like 14 co-defendants deep that some of them are like, like you could tell like the kid's never been in jail before in his life. Mm -hmm. You know, he was mowing his lawn and they come pick him up because he said, you know, okay, I'll come pick you up on the telephone to the wrong person. Real stuff, right? Wow. So uh, I went through this this whole song and dance and figured out, you know, that I was on the cusp of being somewhere around a medium to maximum security points, being that I had, you know, didn't have any real priors or anything like that. I um, assumed that I would be in a medium. This is what my attorney told me. He said, don't worry, you might even be in a low. So I didn't worry about it. And then after I was, you know, tried, of course, my points, your points come in about a week before you get shipped out. Wow. So you don't find out anything until you're basically on the bus. Wow. And um, mine were 26 and you got to have a, a 25 or lower to be in a medium. So I'll oh. find out. Well, I remember a friend of mine was standing right there and he was like, holy crap, Jones, you're going to a USP. What did you do? And I was like, what? What is it bad? What is it? He was like, you know, all over his face. He was like, you know, hand on the shoulder. You're going to be OK, man. Just keep your head up. You'll be all right. You'll make it. Wow. So what's going through your head at that point? Like, I'm like. I don't know. What is a USP? You know, so we're, we can't be as bad as they say, even like the... You know, what does USP stand for? United States Penitentiary, okay. right? There are 13 of them in the United States and they are built like, um, it's like a, a, a wall, a 50-foot a wide wall surrounding a yard that's in the middle. You never see any trees or anything. You're in this yard or you're in these corridors for... The rest of your time and so here i am getting on the bus from this stay i um you know i'm going to a usp usp mccrary in pine knot kentucky we get on a little van that goes takes us to an airport in um somewhere near leachfield kentucky that we were at. i don't i don't even know where we were um and we're on an airplane so i get on that airplane and we fly to michigan then we fly to atlanta and then we fly to oklahoma and oklahoma is this huge transit center that's like a it looks like a, a air traffic control center tower that's like mm -hmm. eight stories high like an octagon and the plane pulls right up and they pull a concourse up and stick it to the plane and we walk out walk on walk onto this concourse you never touch the ground it's like you walk off the plane into a prison you know through the concourse and then up this long corridor there's about three or four hundred people on the plane uh, between u.s marshals and um convicts and then we would go to 400 convicts on one plane about 350 people total you know about maybe 300 convicts it's a huge plane what so 
Um, there, there are two of them. One of them is smaller. One of them is a little bigger. And when they stopped to do these exchanges, like at the airport, it could, it was like, one of them was like a huge airport in the middle of like, um, uh, Detroit or something like that. Or maybe it was whichever one's south, more south of Michigan, uh, the bigger city. And then Atlanta, when they pull up to like a regular spot at the airport where like the private planes and stuff are and these buses pull up and these U.S. Marshals are all standing like in these strategic tacked out, you know, machine guns and shotguns. And uh, at one point and on, a, on another transit, there was a, a Black Hawk just hovering above the, the exchange there. I don't know what that was, maybe a high profile, you know, trans, transport or whatever. But um Anyhow, this um, um, classification facility in Oklahoma, they process 400 people a day, right? That means so coming, crazy. coming in, I mean, it's like cattle. You walk up on like a three-tier stage and there's a U.S. Marshal at your waist, a U.S. Marshal on your feet, and a U.S. Marshal behind you. And you walk through there like, you know, um, strafing sideways and one of them undoes your hands, one of them undoes your legs, one of them undoes your back, one of them pulls all the chains out, one of them grabs your ankle shackles and you, and you go to the next one. And by the time you walk off the stage, you've got all your shackles off. And that's the worst part about being in a transport as a USP, like that's like a high, uh, whatever it is, because I robbed a bank with a simulated explosive device. I'm classified as a violent, um, mm -hmm. whatever convict. And they put this black box around your hands when you travel. It was like, makes your hands basically impossible to move. Like with handouts, you could, you know, read a book, check your phone, reach in your pocket, whatever. But these things literally have your hands stretched out right in front of you, like nothing. Well, and then they just throw a sandwich in your lap. You're on the plane all day, like well, nine hours or so. And you're like, you know, trying to reach down and curl over and tear open a pack of crackers. And it's, you know, I don't know. I guess we maybe we deserved it. I don't know, but it sucked bad. Wow. Wow. So, so we, I, and you stay at the classification center for a couple of weeks. You figure out kind of where you're going. They're not going to tell you where you're going. You already know where you're going. If you can figure out, all you got to have to do is look at the abbreviation beside your name when they're asking you about your medical issues or whatever. It's going to say ATL or BEO or whatever, like it's for Beaumont or Atlanta or I uh, think uh, McCrary was MCR. So if you can find out what MCR is, someone will tell you you're going to McCrary or you're going to this one or that one. So when I did finally touch down at McCrary, um, you know, it was there walking in with about, I don't know, 10 or 15 other guys and they processed us. Um, I can remember SIS, that's the... Um, um, like the gang classification portion, you go through all the departments, mm -hmm. whether it is um, um, uh, 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 religious, um, psychological, health, education, mm -hmm. skills, you know, you, the whole gamut of, you know, all those departments. And then, of course, one of them is your affiliations. And I didn't know what SIS was. I have no idea who the guy is. It's even They don't introduce themselves. They just say, what's this? How old are you? Do you have any anxiety? Um, do you have any medical issues? That's it. You're just answering questions. So this guy was like, who are you going to be? Uh, he's like, who do you spend your time with? And I was like, well, I, um, you know, I'm with my girlfriend most of the time. I like to, you know, maybe, maybe see my kids on the weekends. 
<laughs> so, and he was like, nah, man, who are you going to be doing your time with here? And I was like, well, I said, I just came here alone. I don't, I don't have any friends. myself and I. Yeah. And, and he looked at me like, well, this stupid ass dude, you know? And I, and I was like, what? And he was like, man, where are you from? And I said, I'm from like Lebanon, Tennessee. It's like 20 minutes east of Nashville. And he scribbled something down on his paper and wrote some stuff in there. And he was like, go see John John Boy in Bravo uh, a Bravo 6. That's your shot caller. He's going to get you straightened out. What? So what's a, what's a shot caller? Well, he's the the leader of the, he, he said, you're in, you're with the independent white car. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> this is what he's telling me. He says, you're with the independent white car of Tennessee. Go oh, out with Bravo 6. So there are gangs. This is the way USPs work. It's game time is mandatory. You are owned, controlled, and um, and regulated by a, a higher up in a convict, you know, that are running. And they like it like that because it cuts down on them having to segregate or worry about segregation issues or so gangs are formed from either religious beliefs mm. or you know there are street gangs there are ones that are formed from regional uh locations so if you're they say the independence that's like saying you're in a gang but you're not in a gang but they're one of the most violent uh, strictest cars that there is to be in and I know some people are like why do you keep saying car but that's why that's what they call them in there so if you're in the white car you know white gang then you're either there's you know you've got your Aryan Brotherhood Aryan Brotherhood Texas which is a ABTs and then you have dirty white boys and um and then the brand um which what yeah which Did are, you know any of this before you went none in there? Of it, none of it. None, none of it. Had no idea. I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm in a gang. It's, you know, we'll be high-fiving and playing grab ass. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good on all that. But it wasn't like that. You eat with your race. You don't do business with other races. So me, I'm like, I'm an artist. I immediately getting there, I'm like, I'm trying to tattoo. Okay? Um, I've never done a tattoo really in my life. You know, I mean, I have maybe practiced on a couple and, you know, hope I hope those people are OK now. But <laughs> but I knew that I could do it. I knew that if I had, you know, I had a perfect environment and guys in there are like, you know what, man, do your worst. Let's let's see what let's see what comes out. They don't care. So I was like, I'm about to do this. So immediately. So I'm a tattoo artist. And before the day was out, I had like. A three inch stack of stencils and transfer paper. I uh, had two of the guys like, and that's how they take care of you in there. It's like they dropped me off two tattoo motors, you know, a way to sharpen and make needles and a way to make ink and, you know, put me in contact with several of the people in there where I would get my supplies from. And that was that. So I started, you know, scheduling people. You know, people coming up to me before, you know, the next day and the day after saying, yeah, I want this, I want this. And you know, I would draw them up what they want, make sure that they liked it. I would place it on them like with transfer paper, they'd okay it. And then I would schedule a time to come to their cell and do the work. And then their tattooing is like, um, um, you know, it's like walking the wrong way down the hallway. You know, it's not a huge 
uh, infraction in there. Of course, you could be in a lower security area and it can be like a huge deal, like, oh my God, what are you doing? But in there, the the, the, the staff, the guards would literally just walk by and say, hey, you guys, make sure y'all cover this up in case the lieutenant comes in in the unit. Wow. You know, like, you have to keep a lookout. If you don't keep a lookout, you're basically disrespecting the guy who's in charge of the unit. Well, wow. so I started tattooing. Was that like, well, was that like one of the ways that you genuinely survived? Like, because you had a skill? Is that like a currency? Right. Like, right. That's when, by me doing that, I immediately had... A couple of guys from a, another unit burning ink and making the ink. So, like, well, I remember you tell, tell, tell the story about that because I that was the one story about, about like literally people making ink. Like, you know, you buy it from the store, but well, it was like it, that whole. It's really hard to do. So you have to have whatever the um, and th- and this is about the most crudest way to do it. So you can get um, you know, real like cosmetic ink in there from or from like arts and crafts, but you got to go through this long process of mm-hmm. being approved, getting on the list, being able to order a certain thing. And they have these specific markers called micron markers that have micro pigments inside of them. And they are the best ink I've ever used, period, ever, right? On anyone. And I've done some nice ones, you know, with real supplies and real stuff from from out here in the world. And um, But anyways, and there they will make ink by taking uh, baby oil or some type of grease, uh, usually the cleanest, no fragrance, you know, like a, a, a little tub of hair grease, right? And they'll stick a wick down in it and transfer it over to like a tin can and make a candle out of it and then place place it underneath like a metal table or a metal chair or a cooktop or something that will withstand the heat without burning and the carbon from the fire touching that metal will create a black soot carbon stalactite that will be hanging off of it and every once in a while they'll come by and scrape that um that black carbon stalactite onto like a card or a container or something like that and once they have enough soot which is what it is, they'll take that and mix it with the, um, what's the fake alcohol that's in deodorant, the oxy, whatever it is, butyl, I don't remember, it's something, it's on the back of every shampoo and deodorant you could ever find. Anyways, they distill the uh, the shampoo or the deodorant down just by boiling it and heating it up and then pouring out the clear liquid, and then you have a sterile way to make the ink that'll go on skin because you can mix it with water and the water will stagnate or mold or you know in your skin yeah yeah you, you could tattoo someone with that stuff and it causes like a major bacterial infection right it's literally chemistry so you have to be smart about what you're doing that's right well, or you're going to end up with some you know or you're going to end up with a situation like you tattooing on a different race and then them their tattoo getting messed up and then they will come to you and say hey man my tattoo's messed up uh can you fix back can you fix it, Come you know, they're going to go to your shot caller, John and Bravo 6, and they'll say, hey, Jones is tattooing on different races and he's messing it up. He's about to crash the car. Y'all need to deal with him. So that's well, basically what happened to me, right, is I I don't really think that, that that was all of it. I just wasn't listening to the guys who were saying, hey, you need to walk a certain way. Uh, we're a community here. You know, like they pulled me over to the side a couple of times and the guy was like, hey, man, you need to uh, think about like 
you know, the white people in here are, are a community and you need to, you know, stay involved with, you know, be involved with, you know, what's happening. You need to come to chow. You need to come to yard at a certain time. You know, and this is like heat of the summer. You go out to the yard out in this place, there are 20, 30 dudes doing crazy routine burpees and just Navy SEALs, you know, lay down and go to sleep. Just insane stuff, you know full contact basketball um you know it's a legit yard there are guys out there selling you know homemade candy and coffee and you know drugs and it's it's all there it's a whole um, city it's a it's a whole city so the yard they have these moves either every hour or every two hours and you know the bell will go off and that means the door's open for you to move from yard to housing unit or yard to the educational wing or the program stations like do they you have to go over every just imagine a big square right or a big rectangle with a football field a basketball court handball court and a baseball field in the center of this square and around the perimeter of this square are these thick walls and on one end there is um an inside rec area a library a church and maybe like a movie or a tv room right and on the other end the opposite end of that is like your program in that's where you're going to find places like psychology department medical department cafeteria you know facility oriented type of you know areas and then on the other two sides are the housing units it'll go a b c d e f and you'll have a one and two b one and two c one and two and then on the other side you'll have other housing units one of the housing units from this collection might be a program unit which is like something where a military based you know wake up fold your corners iron your clothes recite an affirmation with a hundred guys you know get through it and um that type of program which comes with you know huge benefits whether it be time off or um a request to be placed in a different facility and stuff like that so that's basically what it looked like and um i would um run through I don't know. I'd several, I had like a little notebook, you know, where I would keep a schedule and say, I can put you in after rec at three o'clock at your cell or my cell or whatever. And, you know, I would draw designs for guys and make their designs. And then they would take my designs and go to their preferred artist. Um, and I wasn't listening to the whole community thing. I wasn't with the gang thing. I played basketball with the black guys. I, you know, hung out with, uh, I worked out with, with the Serenos and Mexicans and I was tattooing on whoever had the money. In my eyes, I mean, isn't part of being in a gang, um, funneling money from another race and employing the people that are in my race. So I was like, I'm doing my part, man. Yeah. You know? But that caused some issues, yeah? No, they, they don't it was, yeah, it caused some issues. Yeah, hopefully. And it was, you know, that's what, um, you know, led me down this path. These guys took me down the, you know, here, this is what happened. Like, so when you get there, the first thing they want to see is your paperwork, right? And your paperwork is going to say if you testified against anyone. It's going to say if you snitched on anyone. It's going to say if you're a, a child murderer or a rapist, you know, it's, their child molesters, people with sex crimes, anybody with a crime on their paperwork that even says internet on it are getting crushed off these yards. There are strict yards that there are nobody who's hot there and there's nobody that's that's uh, got a sex crime. 
you know, anhat means that you told, basically. So, so a tattletale or like what we all society consider the worst crimes of all time. So those exactly. those those people just don't. They don't walk on the, on USP yards, and there are uh, there are there are three yard three. That is true. So of those thirteen USPs, three of those USPs are what they call drop yards, and they're for people who have dropped out of the gang. There are people who might have like a puppy love sex charge. You know, like it's not there. He was 19 and she was 17 and they, you know, whatever saying he got 40 years in prison or 17 or five years in prison. Or it might be guys that, um, um, you know, turned evidence or something like that on, on somebody. And but they have an extenuating circumstance and they've been upfront about their stuff. So that's those are the people walking those drop yards. Guys get tired of being in those gangs and and they just, you know, they check in and they refuse the programs, try to stay in shoe for their whole bid. So when uh, when my paperwork finally does come in, I'm like, I look over and I'm like, OK, whatever. I robbed the bank. Here you go. I'm good. And tell anybody I don't have any co-defendants. And uh, like two days later, after chow these three monsters came into my cell and literally like tried to kill me they wow. i mean i ended up with three crushed ribs over here uh cracked and damn near crushed orbital socket on my right eye um and i was black and blue from top to bottom and these guys just were not quitting and i was fine after like a few seconds i started fighting with them but it wasn't i mean these guys could have i mean they could have had their way. I mean, these these were like 250, 300 pounds, six plus. You know, there's one skinny dude in the corner just kind of watching the door, and they were beating me up so bad that the police heard them. I mean, I wasn't screaming. There wasn't no noise. All you could hear is like, and you can tell when something's about to happen in there because everybody just gets quiet. And it's weird. It's electric, and I'm telling you, it's it's everything that they say and more. You can tell it's happening. Well, and, you'll hear, after you. and then you hear foot squeaking and 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 the squeaking of tennis shoes. I got PTSD right now to this day. Like if I'm in Walmart and some kids are horse playing or something, I'm not I'm not paying attention. I hear those shoes squeaking on the floor. I'm immediately stopping. Like still to this day. Wow. For real. Wow. Why why were they why? So I had no idea. I was even asking, I was like, what is, I think you got the wrong, you know, the whole like, uh, so anyways, you know, they come in, they took us all to shoe. You know, I'm in shoe for like, shoe? specialized housing unit. It's the hole. The hole, okay. Right? So they strip you down of all your property. You don't have any property. All you have is like a pair of boxers and a t-shirt. And, you know, you can, uh, your commissary list looks like Tylenol, Tylenol, bar of soap, um, ink pen. That's all you can buy off the commissary. Otherwise, it's wait for whatever comes through that little slot in the door. Every day, there's a shower in the room. You don't leave. They're supposed to give you an hour of sunshine every day, but they come through at like 4 a.m. and they go, wreck, wreck time, wreck, wreck time. Of course, nobody hears it because it's 4 a.m. in the morning and they made the call for wreck and you've got two minutes to stand up with your bed folded and be standing at the door with your arms your wrists out of the beanhole backwards, ready to be cuffed and taken out for rep. That's true rep. And that, and that all they do is take you out to a cage um, and let you stand out there for an hour. Which, you know, all you can do is look straight up and see the sky. 
you know? So, and that, I mean, that's where a lot of stuff happens. So everyone that's in the shoe, nobody, they, they talk, they talk through the doors. They'll make like a little skinny, something heavy that will slide underneath the doors and like some dental floss, or they'll get the string out of their beds and bunks and spend days uh, braiding a line. If you're in the shoe, the first thing you're going to want to do is make a car. And that's you know, your telephone. You Somebody's like, hey, man, you got a, you know, a packet of ketchup or a, how about that book you were reading the other day? Blah, blah, blah. So you'll fish down there. It might bounce off the wall. You're trying to get to some guy down six doors down. It's just a range. It's a hallway with a bunch of doors on it. And you're trying to bounce this little thing off the walls and so you can get down there and get a book or whatever. And you might get the book up there, but you can't get it in your, in your pie flaps. You just fish it out of your door and wait a few hours for somebody to come by and when somebody walks by you sweet talk them in a hand and you the book and um of course it's food or you know even you know drugs batteries whatever it is and um was uh was that the end of your first like place that you were is that like the end of that story or like pretty much i, I mean i i didn't basically i'm kind of telling it how how it what happened to me during the time um i'm in shoe and i'm expecting to go back out to the yard and like you know politic this out i'm like yeah you, you guys got this mistaken so i go to wreck in shoe about two weeks after i could you know move around because i couldn't move i was uh sleeping on the floor my celly which i had a cellmate in there at the time was walking to the door and getting the food and you know placing it on the floor because i couldn't move wow and I healed up, my ribs healed up, and or I felt like I could breathe good. I couldn't sleep because I couldn't breathe. My ribs were broken. Mm-hmm. They never came in for an x-ray, nothing. They they did come in x-ray, but it was 30 days after the incident happened. They x-rayed me. So two weeks in, I sneezed, and my rib boom, popped back out right here on my side. Yeah, it was like being rebroken. And then I I was down for another two weeks. So it was about four weeks and I I went out to wreck. You know, got up, I had my hands out the door. I'm ready. My bed's made. My shirt's tucked in. I'm going to wreck. I'm going to go out there and find out what's going on. So seeing this black guy that I did a tattoo on. And he was like, he's like, "Uh, you know why they ran you up, Jones? I was like, man, they didn't run me up. They beat me up. And they, that's a term like when they run somebody up, it means you're you're no longer you're you're rejected. You're no longer in the car. You either stole something, robbed something, you're too messy, you're not in the car anymore. And they basically take you up to the lieutenant's office and say, This dude comes back up to the yard, he's getting smashed. You know, he's we're gonna kill him. So they'll put him in shoe classify him a security threat not the dudes who are threatening his life. <laughs> How does that work? They got shipping well, that's how it works. Well, gangs have run it. That's so while I'm in there, you know, SIS comes investigate like a month later and they say, uh, they'll Jones, they say you're hot. And I was like, There ain't no way I'm hot. I don't even have any co defendants. There's nobody to tell on. I got like seven years for stealing thirty five hundred dollars, man. And um he said, Oh, your attorney wrote in your paperwork here that see, um uh remember you remember I told you I had you know, went to a, a pain management doctor, mm-hmm. right? So um, when they asked, so I was told them I was addicted to drugs. And they're like, where are you getting your drugs from? This is all in my report. So my lawyer's like, where are you getting the drugs from? And I was like, oh, I had a prescription to get my drugs from. I went to, you know, Dr. Such and Such in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. And that was that. Well, 
in my paperwork, it plainly says Mr. Jones was getting his uh, narcotics from Dr. Such and Such in something, something, Tennessee. And that line right there, they said, oh, you told on your doctor. You're done. Oh my God. When you're just trying to like probably be honest and try to like spelling more. I mean, I had prescription. It was like you saying, uh, you know, you told in blue. Yeah, you told on your tire guy for putting tires on your truck. You know what I mean? Like, come on. Hey, oh. So that so that's that's what happened with that. So they put a label on me, and um, so I was in shoe there for like three months, and they sh- and I went through the whole transfer process again, right? Going somewhere else? Yeah, like three stops, buses, trains, oh. Oklahoma City again. Except this time I went to Oklahoma City. I was like, oh, okay, finally, I'm going to my spot. No. I went to Atlanta, which is another transfer center, and it's like the ghetto hellhole. And it is like trash. Like they found like a gun there the week that I was there. They've got this huge wall that's like 30 foot high, and people are throwing stuff, tennis balls and potato gun and tennis balls over the walls and having drones drop stuff off there. Like they say it's flooded there, which means that it's full of everything. Like the place is flooded, full wow. of whatever kind of contraband you can imagine. So I finally get to my next spot, which is Mississippi. And I was there for about, I was there for one night. I watched my cellmate that they put me in there, who happened to be um, the shot caller for the Dirty White Boys, who was the one who put the, the the same gang that, you know, places this hit, this label on me from the place that I just got shipped from, put me right back out in population. And he's like, yeah, so the door's going to pop in the morning, man. We're going to see what's what. And I stayed there awake. I was so tired, too. I was staying awake all night. I was scared to death this guy was going to kill me in sleep. He had, like, six face tattoos. He was taking some kind of little... um like they call it a binky in there but it, what it is it's a like a little uh suction device that they've taken and they've m- stolen uh the the tip out of a hypodermic syringe and made a homemade syringe out of and he would take something and was making liquid out of it and he would take that little binky and suck the water up in it and squeeze it into his vein like about once every two or three hours what the and he was tweaking on TV. He, he repaired radios. So he'd sit there and he had a little, he would draw a wiring diagram for a radio. He had drawings and he collected containers for some some reason and just had just all these, it was nasty in there. It was terrible. And it was the two days before Christmas when this happened. So I got my Christmas back and I ate honey bun. It was so awesome. And I got up and I had like two credits on my, uh, on my email thing. And I sent, I sent my girlfriend the one with, you know, without my kid, a message like, I love you. I finally got to a place. And at this point, it had been like eight months. I hadn't talked to a soul at home. No one. Wow. So let me backtrack. And while I was in shoe, laid up, like feeling like I was going to die, I got a letter from my high school teacher slash uh guy who went to bat for me over and over and over. I've mentioned him in several podcasts. He writes me a letter, Mr. Oliver, right? And he's like, hey, I heard, I think my mom had sent a message on Facebook or something like that I was in bad shape and that I'd been in some trouble. And he reached out to me. He put some money on my books. So maybe you can get some food or some art supplies with this with, you know, he didn't know I, you know, I was in a, in a shoe where you're basically don't have anything and you can't right. you couldn't buy anything if it was there anything to buy or or have any type of you know comfort or food or whatever so 
He wrote me a letter. I wrote him back, and we exchanged, um, you know, inspiring stories. It was it was really really awesome. It made a a, a, um, a a big difference for me. So I stayed in touch with him. And, and uh, the next morning, going back to Mississippi, the next morning I was in Jackson, Mississippi at another USP. And I, um, you know, I began thinking, wow, am I going to be doing this my whole sentence for the next 77 months? Am I going to be having to go ship from one yard to the next, having to go from shoe to shoe to shoe? And because the next morning I saw these guys congregating, you know, they weren't, but they, the, the email system, there are people out here on the outside. See, for example, like, you know, B Betty Joe that sits over there at her computer and she connects John boy and G daddy over here in Texas and is a third party communicator for them to pass messages through. Of course they can't email each other because that's the way the system is set up, but they can, one of them can email her and she can later that email to them as a third, like she's emailing them and then they can email her and she can forward that email to him. There are whole services out there that you can literally text someone on a phone by sending a, BP, whatever they call it. I think it's, what are the emails called? It's like a BP 199 or something like that. But that's what they call the message. But you get on there and you send an email to a service that rearranges that, those words and forwards it uh, from a telephone number, like a Google voice number, and sends it as a text message. It takes like two hours to go through, but you're literally sending a text. And then when they text you back, the system rearranges it and emails you back. For like 40 bucks a month, you can set that up and be able to communicate with someone Wild. in per, in pretty close to real time. So they, net, they network this label. So, hey, they'll say, you know, Jones is going to touch down in Mississippi. Before I left, they knew I was coming. Right. So the next morning I hear an announcement, uh, new arrivals to laundry. So I was like, I grabbed my laundry bag and I headed right to laundry. And as soon as I got to laundry, I walked the door. I said, Hey man, I'm pretty sure that, um, um, I've been networked and labeled as high. I'm pretty sure that, you know, I'm probably going to get killed on this yard today. So you need to put me in shoe or something. So he's like, all right, whatever. So he put me in shoe and that's where I was. They tried to get me to like program. They would like starve you. They put you in a, um, in a, a isolation cell for like three days, you know, all the way naked, no clothes, no blankets, no nothing oh. to try to make you go back out to yard because so many people are in shoe. There are people in there like throwing feces and urine and just going crazy in there. This shoe in there was absolutely insane. Like they didn't care about the fishing. There could be 14 lines tied across the, the range, like on the floor. You could look out your window and see all the lines tied off. It was basically like a pulley system for people to be able to get and, and send and receive, you know, stuff underneath the doors. And the police would come in and just step over all of it. You know what I mean? Walk down the range, come back. And it's just like so hard to believe in the fact that like, again, obviously you knew none of this. Yeah, I'm learning it as I go. I'm watching it. It's like interesting to me. To be honest with you, it was like something kind of other than like the constant hunger, right. the yelling, the screaming, the insane sellies who have no, you know what I mean, who are, who are just psychologically, you know, abrasive um, it's fascinating. It was something to kind of be like, man, this I'm I'm doing this. You know, this is crazy. 
Well, you you like studying stuff, so I feel like it was an opportunity to like study and get to know something inside and out. So it was. I mean, I made myself make it, and you know, I was like, surely something's got to happen. The whole time, I'm like writing my mom and whoever can help me to try to get me sit to one of these drop yards, right, or something, or I can get a, um, in a program environment and, and get to where I can actually do my time and. You know, low, I, I end up with this psychocelly, right? And I, 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 they call it Jack in the Slot. I know that sounds like a, a, a sexual term, but it's not. It, it, the slot is the pie hole in the door. And in the shoe, they have to close these slots or it's a security risk. It's just something that they do at the end yeah. of the night. They, come, they leave them open during the day as long as everybody's acting good. So you can get air in there and, you know, you can feel the cool air or warm air coming through those slots. And it's a big deal. And um, so when they come through the shutdown, sometimes people, in order to, like, get... Uh, you know, a uh, a lieutenant or get something done or get what they need, they'll stick their arm out the slot. And by regulation, they cannot close the, the slot on your arm. That's basically assaulting you. Mm-hmm. So what you're going to do is stick your hand out the slot and wait for them. Then they'll say, all right, I'm going to mace you. I'm going to mace you. But they can't mace you either. So it's like this game. So I ended up jacking the slot saying, get me out of the cell. Because my cellmate was an absolute lunatic, right? Oh my God. He was turned out time. Well, he which turned out he was a child murderer. He, he murdered two police officers as like a fifteen year old kid. Yeah. And he was constantly like writing these pen pal things. It was just it just got really I just couldn't do it anymore. Been two months in the cell with this guy working out, trying to be the most positive person that I could be. And it just you can only do it so long. So he put me in a cell with an even worse celly. No. But this guy was from this place in Illinois, which is actually the place I ended up at. And he was telling me, oh, you got to do this. You got to do that. And he'd obviously been in the system for a long time. And psychology came to see him. They recommended this program in Florida. And I was like, so this is a program where people who are going through the shoe system are going through, and it's an opportunity for them to get points down to um, medium points. You do it for a year and you get your medium points and you get to go to a medium of your choice if you make it through the program. It's called Sign me it's called up. the reintegration housing unit. So and it's kinda like shoe, but you're out in a big unit, you have programming, you have access, you have TV. Okay. You know what I mean? You're not trapped in a bathroom with another man for years so you know it's it's different and there's an opportunity to actually have a telephone and and, and interact and react Thanks again for listening to part one of The Perfect Storm to Reform. Like we said, part two is already posted right now, so go ahead and take a listen. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Do It Scared, as well as visit our website, www.doitscared.com slash podcast. We'll see you in the next one. Bye.